It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is my pleasure, and I must say that again, it is my great pleasure, in fact, <laughs> to have uh, someone sitting across from me whom I've never met before. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Uh, Daniel Bryant is uh, someone I have known uh, since university days, and uh, I, it's so great to have him sitting here because he, in fact, has a new book that has just come out, a book of short stories. Rerouted is the name of the book. You say rerouted or rerouted? Which one are you saying? You know, it can be either. Uh, both would work. Rerouted mm-hmm. is uh, kind of works for me because uh, you think of um, like getting routed, yes. like an army getting routed. And yep. with each story, it starts off in a, they're all heading in a, a direction, but things go <laughs> askew and they get routed from where they were planning to go. Indeed they do, Dan, indeed they do. And um, before we get into a little more of the book, let me tell you a little bit about Dan. Dan uh, was born in Montreal and he grew up in the small, small town of Aurora, Ontario. Yes, yeah. And uh, he, of course, graduated from York University with an honors BA in English, and he received the Timothy Findlay William Whitehead Scholarship to attend Humber School for Writers Correspondence Program. Um, what does that entail, Dan? What, what does that entail when you get selected for that? Well, I, I submitted some um, work to the, the Humber School, and uh, they, they gave me that uh, fabulous award, and it, it allowed me to work with Paul Corrington hmm. uh, for a year, mm-hmm. and he's gone too soon. He was an excellent fellow and a, a very good writer. But I worked with him for about a year. Uh, I would work on some uh, stories. I was trying to write a novel at the time, and uh, he would critique it, and I'd take it back and rewrite it. And, uh, yeah, the the scholarship allowed me to do it without having to pay... Uh, a lot of money to do it, which is very important. <laughs> now, of course, the other person that you you sort of mentored with was uh, Will Ferguson, and and that goes back to university days. Will was at school with us. Yes, he was in residence with us, and uh, we all used to hang out and um, you know eat dinner and lunch <laughs> together in the cafeteria. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember with Will, he was actually in film school at York. Mm. And uh, I was always, uh, I think you probably ended up helping a lot of people in uh, film school mm-hmm. doing different projects and stuff. So with Will, even though I was like an English major, I would sort of skip class or, you know, procrastinate on my own uh, essays and stuff like that to go help him uh, do his films. And it was fun. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, he, he went on to write. Become a writer. Yeah, yeah great. I, <laughs> <laughs> Very well known and successful, so that worked out well. Yeah, it worked out well. And the funny thing is, when uh, he went on to become a writer, and then I graduated and became, worked in uh, film for like ten, fifteen years. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of ironic. We kind of switched trajectories there. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, you might say we rerouted. I got right? rerouted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, it's interesting, of course, that you use the word rerouted because, of course, the other thing that you have done as a, as a, a means of earning income is you work for the, for the postal service. Yes, I work for Canada Post. I still work for mm-hmm. Canada Post. I'm a letter carrier uh, in the Riverdale area, which is a very, very uh, nice area. It's full of trees, and uh, I find that uh, 
even though you can't, you know, they talk about forest bathing, which is almost impossible to do in an urban environment. It's almost like that because when you work amongst tall trees, it has a very calming effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the, the book is kind of inspired from uh, working in the post office. The first story involves a postman who uh, is assigned a cursed route by a, an abandoned tannery. And it starts off like a you know like a typical narrative, but quickly spins out of control into some pretty dark places. It certainly does, uh, <laughs> and and there's uh, some odd things that I that I, I noticed that also you mentioned procrastination, and you mentioned that in, in an article I read about you of, of how you're very easily uh, distracted. Oh yeah, yeah. And and uh, one of the things you started to look at was parrots. Which yes, was, which show up in your stories. Yeah, so. The the way I write, I, I I approach writing. I just start off with a bunch of characters and a situation, and I just kind of go from there. So with this one particular story, the the first one, I was writing, and then all of a sudden this parrot shows up. I'm start starting to write about this parrot. So I stopped writing and spent probably a month just taking out every single book from the library, looking up every single article about parrots, and. Uh, annoying my wife like crazy because every conversation for that month was, did you know that parrots, you know, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. And uh, she was only marginally relieved when I started doing research on lichen. Right. (laughs) Which show up in another story. Which show up in, yeah, later on in the story. (laughs) Right. Now, uh, that's very interesting. I also thought it was was interesting that your wife, in fact, uh, sort of said to you, why don't you just complete this? Why don't you do something? Oh, yeah. I think every... Every guy can uh, yeah. sort of respond to this, and that is, uh, I'd always, I, you know, I, I like to write. I'd always been writing these stories, but I never really finished any. And then at a certain point, you you hit a certain age, and uh, your wife gets a little fed up, and she says, "Well, well, why don't you just finish something?" And it's like, <laughs> "Okay, <laughs> I'm going to finish a book." <laughs> And in fact, you did. And, I did. And yeah. Congratulations. Amazingly enough. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank Dan. you, David. Yeah. Uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this on many, uh, many fronts. From and and I was not expecting it, but you know what's interesting because I do know you. Yes. Is that I could see you in the stories, you know, and your your sense of humor in there, and of course the things you're involved with, not only the postal service but the the movie industry, which you had been involved with for quite some time. Yes. But music, I remember, yeah. you know, wa- you walking around residence with your guitar strapped over you. Oh and, yeah, yeah, you know. So uh, there was a lot of familiarity in 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 these stories for me, but. But I, I think it was interesting because this other article I read on you, uh, and I don't know if you were joking uh, about it, uh, saying you should write about things you know, uh, yeah. but then you made this joke about, well, you know, how, you didn't, or, you know, shame on readers for thinking so. Oh, a thing. I know. You you have to, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Hmm. And uh, like, for instance, the, well, the story Ghost Note, mm-hmm. uh, as I was uh, writing that, um, uh, the main characters encountered, and again, as I say, I write with just a situation, a bunch of characters, and they go off, they're heading in one direction, but it, they don't always get there. So these particular characters, musicians on tour in northern Ontario, they end up uh, meeting up with um, some uh, indigenous characters, and so... As a result of that, I had to kind of, again, put aside what I was writing, do 
more research. Uh, I'd already read uh, Thomas King's mm. The Inconvenient Indian, which mm-hmm. is an excellent text. And uh, I, I read uh, Wab Canoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's uh, Evan Pritchard, uh, who's um, in the States. He's a professor, and uh, he wrote uh, No Word for Time. And just reading article after article. And so then with uh, great humility, I, I, I started fleshing out those characters. And with that story in particular, it is about the horrors of being consumed by the other in both a explicit and uh, implicit way. So the text talks about that in various ways and illustrates it in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm just wondering, you said you had done research, you've read some Thomas King, you've read some other indigenous uh, writers. When you approached the idea as a non-indigenous person oh, writing yeah, about yeah. indigenous people, what was the, did you get some pushback? Did, did, did you get some, how did you approach that then to, 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 you know, to do that, in a, as you say, in a humble and, and way? Well, um, I saw, I've, I asked a, a person at work who's indigenous, I had, had you read it mm-hmm. as well, and uh, I just tried to be, uh, you know, uh, establish a certain amount of humility, not knowing myself, but being able to uh, empathize and sort of feel for how other people may experience Things. And I think that is uh, one thing that a lot of my fellow human beings have forgotten how to do, and that is sort of to develop empathy for someone who has a different life experience and pull back on judgment and just sort of be uh, open-hearted and open-minded. I think the other thing that you that your characters pick up on as well is that we are all human. Yeah. It's just, yeah. you know... We're, we're all, all the same, yeah. We, we grew we grew up in different cultures with different belief systems, and uh, I think there, there was... I was reading something about uh, Simone de Beauvoir, and she mentioned that... And she kind of recalibrated it back a bit later on in life, but uh, it's good to be attached... Well, actually, it's you start off with your belief systems and your attachments and whatnot, but at, in the end, you have to realize that you're human and you have to kind of be able to step away from it, but also recognize that it's an important aspect of everyone else's personality and you can't discount it. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very important mindset to have. It's it's kind of uh, playing with a duality, uh, kind of like one of the characters uh, in the book Ghost Note who begins to absorb uh, two two people. You know, mm. the, this entity becomes two people. Mm-hmm. And it's, you have to honor where you come from, but you also have to honor where other people come from and, and uh, not be so judgmental. That's so important. Right. You know, the other thing that uh, I, I want to mention to you, Dan, about this is that I, I very much found this very uh, visual in the way you wrote the stories. I could very easily see these being uh, 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 moved over to the film side of things. I could see all of these stories being done 
um, in that in that medium very easily. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, someone will read the book and want to do that because they would make excellent uh, films. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, the research you did on the parrot. Uh, you've <laughs> mentioned yeah. about the, some of the other research you've done. I, I'm wondering about characters, and you, you, we talked a little bit about that from the indigenous side of things. But later on in the story, there's some stories, that, you know, at the very end. Um, at the, the, you remember the, the last story? Uh, yes, the, the dog uh, walk. Dog walk, <clears throat> yes. Now, uh, that's an interesting little yeah. short story. <laughs> Getting into some, you know, uh, some very interesting characters that uh, live on, you know, the outskirts of of sort of, uh, you know, maybe not your mainstream uh, sort of lifestyle. Um, a, a, you know, a woman that walks the streets and and goes into a hotel and and and. Oh, Saint Elliot. That's the Saint Elliot oh, is one. That the... Yeah, the Saint Elliot. The. The dog walk. Oh is, yes, you're yeah. right. You're right, but that leads into it. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, you're right. Saint Elliot. Ah, Saint Elliot. Yes. Yes. Pardon me. Okay, so that one was inspired by when I was working in film, uh, various locations around Toronto. Uh, we would work at all hours of the day and night, and so you would constantly interact with people who lived marginal mm-hmm. lives, and it's. It's uh, it is kind of it's heartbreaking, but also at the same time, uh, holding back on the pity because pity never makes for a a good story. Mm. It's like these are people; they all, everyone, even when you're down and out, uh, you still struggle and you still try and find uh, meaning in your life and a way of going forward, no matter what that is. So. It's kind of a it's it's a funny dark story. It's kind of like a film noir, mm-hmm. and it was inspired mostly by a, one location, which was I think the Saint Leonard Motel on mm. Sherborne. Mm. We'd be parked out there numerous times, and I just like stare at the building and watch the people coming and going, and I would develop these storylines. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as further to what you're saying about. Uh, you know, marginalized people are like when you get to a certain point. The last story, yes. which it leads into, is kind of the 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 quintessential story. I think all people, when they get to a certain age and they think about their life uh, in terms of has it imploded yet, or is it about to implode or explode? Uh, even if you're reasonably secure there's always doubt so with that character and what he's experienced he's kind of on the downward uh, swing but he's still trying to make sense of his life and with that particular story it wraps up all the other stories that preceded it in a way that um, that main character Benjamin mm-hmm. who Kind of appears as uh, as alter ego as Benny Tack yes. in all the other stories. The what the information he with the walks about woman he's talking to or he thinks about in his mind is all relevant to the stories, the particular characters, situations that have happened preceding, and the idea is that we are all 
storytellers. All humans love to tell stories, and that's one of the fundamental things, stories and music. It's a fundamental part of being a human being. And so when we tell stories, they're not always accurate. Uh, but there's certain elements of truth in them that, and entertainment that allow us to sort of uh, digest it, uh, to consume it, and to um, enjoy it. Mm. You're listening to Element FM. My name is David Moses. I'm your host, and uh, my guest uh, here on the show, Moment of Truth, is Daniel Bryant. And we're talking about his uh, first book that has just come out, uh, published by Porcupine Quill. And uh, Dan, it's available on Amazon as on well. On Amazon. Yeah, in, in smaller uh, small bookstores, they will have it. Usually, in any bookstore, if they don't have it, you can just ask for it. Okay, and we're going to uh, we're going to actually be giving a book away at the end of the show. Oh, nice! We'll tell you more about that uh, later, uh, Dan. I'm just wondering, how long did this project take you? It took about two years. One, a year and a half of hard writing, mm. and then a year and a half of. Uh, I guess we call post-production work, like doing the final edits, um, communicating with the publisher about what needs to be changed or tweaking stuff. And then uh, about six months of uh, till it got printed. Mm. And uh, now it's been out for, what, a couple of months? Yeah, it's been out since August. Yeah, and so... You know, I, I akin uh, creative work to much like having a child. Yes. You give birth to it, it's out, then it's on its own. Yes. It's out there on its own. Yeah. Um, it, I know you've had some some interesting and very encouraging comments that have come back to you from some people. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, because I'm a postman, uh, a lot of people on my route have been buying this book. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's, it's nothing to do with blackmail or anything like that. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of people have been coming up to me after reading it, and I think they're just surprised that it's not bad. Mm. You know, not uh, you know, people <laughs> like, oh, I enjoyed that. <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, and but it's been sincere. A lot of people enjoyed it. They've enjoyed the humor, the uh, dark humor, mm-hmm. and the the fact that it's, it's off kilter. It's, it's just an entertaining read that will perhaps provoke some thoughts about our role in life and and how we interact with other people but predominantly it's it's a uh, it, it should be entertaining it is and, and yeah. exactly i was that's what the word that came to mind is that uh it is very entertaining yeah. um uh, so, sorry go ahead. oh okay so uh one thing i should mention with the last story too there's a, a weird kind of way it it ties up the are you familiar with the the shaggy dog story yes okay so it's it's a little bit of a an elaborate meta joke in that the the last story the one of the main characters is nia the dog yes and is a shaggy, shaggy dog <laughs> and with a shaggy dog story it's how the story ends isn't as important as the process of how the story was told so in a way, the last story, although it's entertaining and a, a, little, a little bit crazy, it, the, it, it's a reflection about how 
the book itself is about enjoying the process of how the the stories unfold, the humor pops up unexpectedly, and and the darkness kind of pops up unexpectedly too. Mm. And is it is it a hint that maybe you you might want to I- enjoy some some extra curricular? Oh, extra, yeah, <laughs> a little Sorry. bit of uh, chemical, uh, Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> while reading the chemical book, chemical fun while reading the book, yeah. <laughs> That's true, yeah. And and uh, uh, notice, too, that pretty well most of the characters in the book are, you know, fictitious. There's, you know, my I used my son's name, I used mm. my daughter's name, just mm. because I could. Mm. Uh, but the only person, the only thing that's absolutely corresponds to a real, actual figure is Nia, my dog, mm. because she can't sue me. <laughs> 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 she doesn't have access to a lawyer. <laughs> well, there's another familiar name in there as well. Oh I yes, I'm, I was like is Moses really? Neber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a surprise when yeah, I got there. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of funny. It was, I, I was, uh, I was, when I met this character mm. while writing the text, I think, what will his name be? And I, I was thinking of you, and I, I kind of like your name. Uh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and I thought, yeah, Moses. Moses is a good name for this character. And uh, part of his his personality and his wit is also borrowed from uh, Thomas King mm. when because he's very acerbic, sort of a cutting humor and a a, a, a bit of a trickster, like a trickster in how he sort of introduces information that mm. is kind of you should be appalled at. Uh, but he, it, it's so you you laugh and you're kind of like, oh, that's funny how he presents it, but it's it's terrible what you know what uh, sis, systemically has happened to the indigenous peoples over the course of the past 150 years. Mm. True enough. Um, mm. Now there was one other thing that I was trying to get at when I mentioned that you've had some good comments. Uh, I remember you mentioning to me that. Uh, that someone I believe that was nominated for an award. Uh, oh, oh, there's yeah. okay. So Will Ferguson, he he read a pre-publication copy mm. and he he loved it. He he uh, uh, on the dust cover on the mm-hmm. back, I think uh, mm-hmm. he, there's a quote from him. Uh, also, there was a Giller judge yeah. uh, that I won't name, but mm-hmm. she. Uh, she really enjoyed it, and she's mentioned that a couple of the other Giller judges enjoyed reading it. And uh, at some point, she has mentioned that she wanted to profile me on her blog. So that's like a, a very positive and affirming that someone who is reading a lot of books mm. for the purpose of you know jury mm-hmm. uh, selection for these different prizes found time enough to contact me and to say that she really liked it. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. You know, uh, the other thing that I was going to mention is, of course, that there's a lot of um, uh, references, Ontario references, Canadiana, you know, Tim's, of course. Yes. Um, uh, I believe it's the first first story uh, about, uh, oh no, it's the, it's the second story, the Mocha al Grande. Oh, yes, yes. Which, of course, is, it, is just comical in terms of the way these uh, robbers go about trying to rob the, uh, uh, this uh, high end, I guess, coffee, coffee shop, which uh, is, is 
humorous in itself right there. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a funny story. That um I very much slapstick mm. uh and it it is hard to write slapstick, mm. I understand, but yeah, it comes across as very very funny. The um and it's yeah, they're trying to rob a business before it opens for business. Right. So they being enterprising individuals, they decide that they're going to open up the store, you uh, hold the employees who are hostage mm-hmm. and get them to work for them and make some money and then, uh, you know, go to school because they're both in school. And uh, that's when you're introduced to the Benny Tack character uh, or he, mm. you're introduced before, but he, he pops up again as the film PA. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the annoying. Guy comes in to get the coffee. You'll go in and get the coffee. <laughs> and that's, that was my experience when I worked in film a mm. lot of times because I worked in transport mostly. Mm-hmm. So you're always going on these endless coffee runs to Starbucks and, oh, yeah, usually always Starbucks because mm. the, the Hollywood types wouldn't mm. drink Tim's. Mm-hmm. And you'd be going there and you'd be dropping a load of cash for right. like really fancy coffee drinks. Right. Right. And it's because like, yeah, those uh, A-listers, they they won't leave their their uh, dressing room unless they're properly caffeinated. Wow, yeah. got to take care of them. Yeah, got to take care of them. So Dan, now this is done. It's completed. It's out there uh, on the shelves, and uh, you're getting some feedback. How does it feel to have it completed? It feels good. It, it's it's interesting because now it's. My my mind is more towards okay. How do I get uh, the word out about the book? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm also thinking of like there's other uh, stories I'm working on the uh, the ghost note with the hapless musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on a story where they end up in Manitoba and they they get hired by a. Uh, Bible camp to be the music directors for mm. this. And of course, they're uh, ill-suited for such a job. Uh, and it'll be on the same lake where mm. Nate is at the secret CDC facility oh, yes, where they're right. studying him for right. his, you know, weird uh, appetites. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You'll have to read the stories, folks. And I guarantee you will not be disappointed when you do so. Let me just read you a little bit about to what they've, they've said about this book in, in, the, uh, in the press release. It says, Expect the unexpected in Daniel Bryan's collection of linked short stories in which myth, mirth, and mayhem are never far away. Very true. A postal worker confronts the supernatural after he is assigned a cursed route near an abandoned tannery. An attempted robbery goes awry when dim-witted thieves decide to knock off a coffee joint before it opens for business. Touring musicians experience uncomfortably close encounters while on the road in northern Ontario. Serial killers and shapeshifters are the least of their problems. Bad songwriting. That's the real <laughs> elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah, that is continuously so, yeah. through, the, through that story. It's great. Uh, these and other stories form a linked narrative in which the mysterious Benny Talk appears and disappears. He is the cipher. Some insidious background performers who show up in everyone's personal narrative. Either way, he is ready for his close-up with the lines memorized. Eerie at times, otherworldly, the darkly comic tales in rerouted take surprising detours, exploring what happens when plans change, things get 
weird and fate is rewrited. Uh, Dan, congratulations. You know, I want to also, I was at your book launch. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And I appreciate you uh, inviting me to that, and I was glad to be there to, to support you. I, and I think that you mentioned mil- humility, and I want to say that uh, I was very touched by the way you went about your book launch. You had hired uh, some, some musicians, you know, but yes. to perform. But, um, but you also, uh, this woman who is a, is a quadriplegic? She has cerebral palsy, cerebral palsy from birth. Her name is Anne Abbott. She's a very talented artist, mm-hmm. uh, and she, uh, she's only able to use her finger for painting. So I met her down in the basement of the St. Lawrence Market, where usually every Saturday she sets up a table with her postcards of her paintings and some original artwork uh, there for sale. And I I used to talk to her. Well, uh, she's unable to talk, so she has an interpreter with her. who She'll point to words and and stuff like that and letters, and the interpreter will help communicate. But uh, she's a very lovely woman, a very fierce uh, spirit. And so when I was blessed with being able to get this book out, uh, I I looked around me and I thought, okay, well, how can I help other people? Uh, I liked her, always liked her artwork. I used to buy the postcards. And so I approached her, I commissioned her to paint uh, her interpretation of the book cover, which she did. She did an excellent job. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I do uh, book promotions and stuff like that, I'll usually bring her painting with me with a couple of handouts about her to hopefully spread the news better so she can get more work. And also, uh, yeah, with the band, it's a, um, Darren, who's a fellow postie. Uh, I heard about him playing. I'd gone up a couple of times to the rock pile to watch him play. And I thought, yeah, it'd be fun to hire someone I know mm. to play, you know, some rock and roll ACDC cover tunes. And they did an excellent job. And also, right now, I'm working with this tattoo artist, uh, her name is Susanna Villachez. Uh, she uh, she goes by the name Susperia, I believe. She works out of Queen West. So she does kind of, her style is like a gothic horror. Uh, she does airbrushing as well as tattoos. So I've commissioned her to take one of the scenes in the book and do her visual interpretation of it. And I'll bring that with me to uh, when I do a you know various book tours and stuff like that because she has a very a very interesting style and it's uh, because it's very colorful it's uh, again it's it's horrific in a good way mm. like gothic good gothic mm-hmm. horror so mm. well I was very uh, touched by that and, and uh, the fact that you were thinking of other people. Uh, well, in the midst of, of your book launch and getting these people to be involved, I thought was uh, uh, very uh, big of you and very big-hearted, and, and, uh, and, and I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. And, that, and this, this woman's uh, creation that she did that, w- that was on display, uh, I want to make sure we mention that for both you and her. Okay, excellent. Um, I could probably send you a, a, a picture of it. I took a picture of it. Then, of it. Yeah, and then, uh, I'm wondering if maybe we can we can probably put that online yeah. so we can you know show people. I did yeah. speak with her afterwards, and I yeah. told, told her that we might uh, want to take a picture and maybe put that up online. Yeah, so. yeah, she's a good woman. Yeah. yeah. 
So, Dan, is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention that uh, before we f- we ro- wrap up? Because we are getting close to the end close of our time. Close to the end. Well, uh, I would say on that note of like paying it forward, mm. I, I think it's important that when you do anything in life uh, and you meet any sort of success, or especially with the arts, it's so important to allow other people to input their creative energy at this uh, along with you or in their own way because i think that is fundamentally what makes us human in a good way is our need to be creative and to share that creativity mm. okay dan it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today i'm so uh, pleased that we were able to do this able to uh, share information about your book. Congratulations once again. I'm so happy for you. I think this is wonderful. And uh, I know that, uh, that uh, uh, this, this means a lot to you. And uh, it, it's nice to see someone that I, that I know and that we know uh, do something and, and produce something that we can look at and, and congratulate them on. And, and all the best in the future, Dan. Okay, thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure to be here. And it's good to see you again, and yeah, you know, we'll hang out. <laughs> I'm sure we will. And listen, speaking of uh, hanging out, we're going to uh, give away a book, a copy oh, yes. of your book. Yes. We want to make sure that uh, people have a chance to get their hands on this and read it, and maybe give us some feedback and give you some feedback on it. That would be excellent. And so what we're going to ask people to do is we're going to ask people to text BOOK at 567-567. Now, Dan, I'm going to ask you to pick a number, maybe uh, 1 to 10. Seven. Seven. Lucky seven. Seventh caller at book 567-567. We will be in touch with you. You just text to book at 567-567. Seventh caller, or texter in this case, uh, will uh, will be the winner. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. My guest, Daniel Bryant, his book is Rerouted. It's his first book of short stories, and it's published by Porcupine Quill. It's been my pleasure to have him on the show today. Don't go away. We will be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I have uh, with me a very interesting guest who uh, will be able to uh, enlighten us on a number of things. Uh, Frances Abel is the... uh, She's a former director of the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton. She has published research reports with the National Center for First Nations Governance, Canadian Policy Research Networks, and the Institute for Research on Public Policy, the Walter Duncan Gordon Foundation, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, and the Institute for Public Administration of Canada. Uh, Francis, welcome to the show, and we're very honored that you're able to join us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Now, interesting uh, career it looks like you've had and some of the things that you've gotten yourself into over, the, over a period of time. The first thing I want to ask you about is, is that you, you are a political scientist. That's right, yeah. Can you explain what that actually means? Well, it's, a, it's an old discipline now, uh, and it, I think what brings everybody into the field is they're interested in understanding how power is wielded in our society and understanding how the institutions uh, give us an opportunity to uh, make decisions together about the future. Uh, I So p- 
people who are studying political science, some of them work on elections, some of them are interested in um, how Canadian governments work, some of them are interested in comparing governments around the world. Um, in my case, I've always looked at Canadian government, and uh, I've worked an awful lot with Indigenous people who are, um, you know, building new governments now. Uh, can you further explain something there? You said something interesting, I thought, when you said uh, that how power is wielded. <laughs> um, can you, can, what, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, what it means is, uh, if you look around the world, you can see that some people have more power than others. Mm. Uh, some people have almost no power, and some people have way too much. Uh, and when I started out as a student... I wanted to understand how that worked, you know, what, what is it that produces that inequity. Uh, and I was very interested in figuring out in a, for a country like Canada, where we have the rule of law and democracy and rights, I wanted to understand how to improve our democracy to make the access to power more equal. Mm. I'm still interested in that. Right. Now, right now, you are, of course, a professor of public policy and administration at Carleton University, as well as academic director of the Carleton Center for Community Innovation. Yes? Yes, although I've stepped down as the, on it, from the second role, and mm. I'm just a research associate there now. But, yep, I'm a professor at Carleton. And you've been there for how long? A long time. <laughs> 35 years. Okay. 34. 34 years. Okay. Um yeah, that's that's quite a career you've had there. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a lifetime. <laughs> certainly is. Now, you're working on a couple of uh, interesting research projects, I understand, right now. And one is aimed to understand the past, present, and future of northern political and economic development. That's the name for the, the whole general area, that's mm -hmm. right. Um, and uh, one part of that is um, some work on... Uh, modern treaties, what people call modern treaties. These are the treaties signed after 1976 between uh, Indigenous authorities and the Crown. Uh, you know, the historic treaty-making process in Canada stopped in 1921, and a great deal of the country still was not covered by treaty. And the Crown didn't start negotiating again for, for that those lands uh, until there was conflict over resource development mm. and started out in the northern Quebec uh, with the James Bay Project. Mm. But um, now there are uh, modern treaties across the Canadian north from Labrador and Nunatsiavut and all the way to uh, Yukon. Yeah. And almost, almost every time the treaty was negotiated uh, because there, there was um, conflict over development questions. Yeah, and I guess, uh, as you say, treaties, uh, that, that's a, a pretty hot topic, uh, both within and uh, within Indigenous communities and outside of Indigenous communities, especially in the, uh, in the, in the area of economic development and, and business. I'm part of, indeed, and the, the project that I'm part of is working with um, an outfit called the Land Claims Agreement Coalition, which is a coalition of all of the parties to the modern treaties all the Indigenous parties to modern treaties. And they had some concerns, long-standing concerns, about implementation, about the Crown's capacity to implement the treaties. Uh, so that's what we're working on. This is a project uh, 
led by Stephanie Earlbacker Fox in northern Canada, and it involves, uh, I don't know how many actually, a number of uh, researchers and, other, and then practitioners, people who are actually working with treaties. Um, now so that... we're, we're trying to help figure out how to make them work better, basically. Yeah. Um, we could we could go on so long about about treaties and the process and how convoluted I suppose that is and we we may get back into that. I just want to uh, talk a little bit more about this was a two a two part thing that you're involved with, uh, and I'm just wondering did we cover all parts of what you're involved with? Well, another project um, is with the Center for First Nations Governance. Uh, and the Institute for Public Administration of Canada. The center is um, based in uh, British Columbia, and they've worked for um, for over 20 years with Indian Act governments in, in Indian Act First Nations, where the people there are interested in uh, figuring out how to get out from under the Indian Act while building uh, a form of self-government that works for them. Uh, and we've, we've created a project called the Transforming Indian Act Governance Project where we're trying to bring First Nations together who want to work together and bringing the, that group together with academics who are interested in the same thing. Uh, and it's a combination of research and community development. Uh, so that's a very uh, interesting and inspiring work. There's so much going on at the community level across the country that it doesn't hit the news very often, but it's very important. Mm. Now, from your, from your uh, uh, studies and from the things you've been involved with over this 34-year career that you've, you've mentioned, you are a non-Indigenous person. You pointed that out to me, of course, earlier. But um, I, I'm just wondering, what, what surprised you or what, what are the things that, that you have really... Uh, you know, sort of raised your eyebrows over, if the, if I can use that term, uh, over over time when you've looked at the treaties, when you looked at the negotiation process, and and how the relationship works with Canada and Indigenous people in this country, because there is even a difference between the treaties of the East and the West, and it breaks down in many different areas in different ways. Yep, that's for sure. Um, well, I first, I, what surprised me, that's a really good question. I was drawn into this because I was interested, when I was choosing a dissertation topic, I was struck by uh, the Berger Inquiry into the construction of a pipeline in the Mackenzie Valley. And the way that pipeline, the way that inquiry went, uh, the inquiry visited uh, Dene and Métis and Inuvialuit communities uh, all along the pipeline route, and you could hear community people talking about the, their views on the pipeline and the impact that it might have. And then when the report came out, it gave voice to those people, and, they, and, and their views led to the recommendations. So I, was, I wouldn't say I was, I, I was more impressed than surprised mm. that that was possible. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another, and I, I kept working on that. It was the, the um, mobilization of the Dene and Métis that made that inquiry work, uh, and it was the solidarity across all the communities that, uh, that led to the impact. The inquiry was like a megaphone, but they're the ones that had the words to say about it. Uh, so on the positive side, that's what it is. 
and I have seen developments like things like that happen uh, over the last 35 years. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not enough things like that, but you know, plenty to be impressed by. The other side of it is um, now, toward more, you know, more recent times. Um, I'm quite shocked by two things, or disturbed by two things. One is the still how difficult it is for people who aren't indigenous and who aren't who may not um, have day-to-day access to information. It's hard for them to understand what the issues really are, and you can easily meet people who who don't understand why the treaties are important or what a solemn obligation they are, who don't understand. Um, that underfunding uh, in Indian Act communities has brought so much damage. Mm. Uh, and so it's sort of the level of, of um, fact-based understanding is still low, I think, in Canadian society. Um, the second thing that um, surprises me and disturbs me is that it has been very difficult for um, the federal government to find um, a path out of the bad habits that got established in the colonial in colonial times to find better ways to do things to stop being so controlling of life on reserve and that's despite there being uh, very many good people trying to make that happen mm-hmm. and I think that has something to do with institutions themselves and how um, unequal power relations get stuck in those institutions and the habits of of uh, behavior and the way the institutions work just replicate um, oppression. Mm-hmm. So those are the two bad things that, I, I, again, I'm not sure I'm surprised, but I'm certainly struck and, and, and disturbed by them. Right. Um, I, um, guess the, I guess the, when we, when we started, the started the conversation, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, power, power and how and power, power is power wielded is in your, in your early, early uh, uh, delving into this line of work and things. And I guess what what I'm wondering about is, now that you're into this, and we just talked about the treaties, and it, when you when you look at a treaty, uh, do, you, do you find that, in fact, that power or that understanding of uh, how they were written by uh, non-Indigenous uh, people, of course, these treaties, that those, written, those, those treaties were written with the idea of of having control and power over indigenous people. Yes, especially the historic treaties, that's mm-hmm. true. That and you can if if anyone doubts this you can see um the Canada's leaders, the John A. Macdonald and others right around the beginning of the country uh talking about why they're in treaties and what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to control and contain uh, indigenous resistance to settlement, and eventually to uh, get rid of indigenous societies completely, so that there are no, there would no be no more indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the that was the purpose of the treaties to uh, to get control of the land and to con- contain any resistance to it. Uh, there is a big difference between the historic treaties and the modern ones because the modern ones were negotiated by um, indigenous nations and peoples who had access to more resources. They had um, lawyers um, and they had um, leaders who could understand uh, 
English very well. We work in English. Always they're negotiated in English. Um, and, and those things may, meant that the modern treaties um, are a better protection of, of the indigenous lands. Although, the, you know, getting the right uh, text, in, in the, even in the modern treaties, was a real struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, still there was... Um, the, per- the Crown had the purpose of extinguishing Aboriginal rights. They call- that was the phrase, extinguishing Aboriginal rights, to, um, all- to most of people's traditional territory. Um, that was still the idea with those treaties. But the Indigenous parties were able to negotiate certain protections for those traditional lands. That Those protections are not present in the, in the historic treaties. Mm-hmm. And an example of that is a co-management board. Uh, where uh, water and wildlife are regulated by boards, and those boards um, are appointed uh, on an equal basis by the Indigenous parties and the government. Mm. So they, um, in that way, are are able to exercise some control over their traditional lands. And there are other provisions like that in the modern treaties. Just like to let everyone know, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And uh, my guest is Frances Abel. She is a... Uh, Frances Abel, she's a professor of public policy and administration at Carleton University. And it's great that she's able to join us on the line. Um, Frances, with your work that you have done... Um, you have worked in the north, so uh, you know I spent a little bit of time in the north in, when I was working with APTN, and uh, one of the things that struck me about the north was actually when I saw a map of the north. Now that's not so unusual, but what was interesting was that from the north they perceive the world physically from the north, so it was looking to it was looking from the north towards the south, and it was a completely different view of North America, of course. And that made me think that the people in the North, the circumpolar people, view the world completely differently because even even physically, it's a different world up there. Well, there's lots of uh, you, you. I'm very very glad you mentioned that uh, those maps because I wish everybody could look at it, and they would have a much better understanding of the nature of our country too. And you see how vast the Northland is mm-hmm. and what a big proportion of the northern part of the globe is Canada, mm-hmm. is Canadian. Um, and, you know, the other uh, wonderful thing about the North that you don't appreciate till you go is that it is predominantly an Indigenous place. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, Nunavut, the population, is 85% Inuit. Northwest Territories, it's about half the people are Indigenous. And in Yukon, it's, it's a quarter, 25%. So in the three territories, Indigenous people have a great deal more power at the ballot box um, and in um, just shaping the administration where they live be, uh, just just by demographics, just because of their proportion in the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that, was, that's balance, that sort of balance was the case for the whole country until uh, more and more settlers poured in and and uh, rendered indigenous people a minority made them into a minority uh, in northern canada you can you can have a feeling of what the future of the country could be like um, when indigenous people's full participation has been negotiated and settled 
And in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was talking with someone who said that there was a completely different um, working relationship prior to there being that imbalance with indigenous and non-indigenous, with more and more Europeans coming. Um, at one point, I understand very early on in the relationship, there was a, a very healthy working relationship between the indigenous and non-indigenous people. But in different parts of the country at different times, yeah. but you know, at the beginning when, when settlers started to come, and well, first traders came and then settlers, um, they were in a position of weakness. They hadn't, they didn't know the territory, they didn't know how to survive there, didn't know how to get anywhere. Mm. Um, and they were dependent on the indigenous people they encountered uh, for help in, in doing all of those things and, in fact, for surviving. Uh, and in northern Canada, um, anyone can still experience that um, by going on the land with hunters there. And it doesn't, it takes almost no time to realize how much knowledge and skill and technical ability is necessary uh, to survive on the land in the north. Even today, when we have, everybody has access to, you know, more, um, to cell phones and mm -hmm. radios and, you know, internal combustion engines, even so, um, it's not a place where you can go without an intimate knowledge of how to survive on that landscape. And that's that was the experience for for all of the all of the whole country. As as settlers came, they relied upon local knowledge in order to move around, in order to survive winters, um, and in order to make a living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's yeah, move let's this move back to the back future to and the current, uh, because it, there's something else that we want to talk about, and that is this. Uh, this graduate diploma in Indigenous Policy and Administration that is at Carleton's uh, School of Public Policy and Administration, offering this unique graduate and Indigenous Policy Administration. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, thank you for asking me about that. that um, it's a, this uh, is a graduate diploma, as you said. It's meant for people who are wanting to work in or with Indigenous governments and organizations. Um, and it is a degree that you can do almost entirely online, two-week residency, the rest is online. And we're aiming for people who are uh, either in jobs like that already or would like to be in those jobs. People, We want to make it accessible to people who uh, may not be able to leave their home in a northern community or in another part of Canada for family or work reasons, but would like to get uh, a graduate education uh, that is tailored to that kind of work. Uh, so it's in a school of public administration. It's not a th theory course so much as it is a theory and practice mm. course. So we have a course on Indigenous-Canada relations that covers the kind of history you and I have been talking about uh, from the beginning to the present, the beginning of contact to the present. But we have courses in things like financial management, uh, for Indigenous governments and organizations, the, the principles that you need to know uh, to, do, to do that kind of work. Um, there's, uh, there are courses in community economic development, in social policy and health policy, uh, in uh, leadership and administration. So we're aiming to provide um, the tools 
that people need in order to um, for professional development um, who are working in those kind of jobs. And we have attracted a wonderful uh, group of students every year. Uh, the program is small. It's a graduate diploma, so um, it's it's not everybody who wants to do something at that level. But this year we have 20, 21 students, uh, which was our target. We and eleven of them are Indigenous, hmm. and they they come from right across the country. Uh, now, in case we've uh, sparked some interest for some people who uh, might be listening to the program, they can uh, get a hold of uh, someone there uh, through uh, this email, ipa at carlton.ca. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Um, they'll, they will reach Sheila Grantham, who is the program administrator, or me. Okay, and then the phone number is 613-520-2547. There is something that I thought was interesting that uh, was in the the printout on this this Indigenous Policy and Administration course that we've been talking about, Evolving Legal Context. Yes, (laughs) and it has to be uh, revived every year. We have to work on that every year. (laughs) You know, it's a series of uh, Supreme Court decisions that have they really changed the landscape for the for crown indigenous interaction and for what people can do have have the scope to do uh through their indigenous governments uh and a you know a big example of that is the Chilcotin decision in BC uh which recently which has i think it was 2014 which has um confirmed indigenous jurisdiction on land on their traditional territory not just on you know, the small bit that would be a reserve, but on all of their traditional territory. Mm. Uh, but there is, you know, there every year there are decisions that um, are giving more force and filling out the meaning of uh, Section 35 of the Constitution, which ex- which acknowledges existing Aboriginal and treaty rights. Mm. Uh, Francis, I know you have to run. We appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. I'm just wondering if there's anything else we haven't touched on that you feel is important to mention. Well, I, I, I just would like to thank you for um, for letting me talk so long. That's a rare experience <laughs> uh, for professors who talk on the radio. Uh, and I hope to hear from uh, some of the people who've been listening who might like to know a little bit more about our program at Carleton. That's great, and we'll make sure to give that uh, information out again. So once again, thanks for joining us on Moment of Truth. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. And that was Frances Abel. She is a professor of public policy and administration at Carleton University. And uh, if you want to hear or find out more, as we mentioned, about the Indigenous Policy and Administration, you can contact them at 613-520-2547 or at ipa at carleton.ca. And that's Moment of Truth. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.